Hulu series? Yeah. Getting into it? Yes, yes. Reading the book? The book in the Bible as well as the study guide? Good, good. Um, I want to start this morning with a, with a couple of illustrations, if I may. First one goes. When I was a boy, my father, a baker, introduced me to the wonders of song, tenor Luciano Pavarotti relates. He urged me to work very hard to develop my voice. Arrigo Pola, you can't help but say that Italian, can you? Arrigo Pola, a professional tenor in my hometown of Medina, Italy, took me as a pupil. I also enrolled in a teacher's college. On graduating, I asked my father, shall I be a teacher or a singer? Luciano, my father replied, if you try to sit on two chairs, you will fall between them. He was probably a bit smaller in his younger days. For life, you must choose one chair. I chose, and it took seven years of study and frustration before I made my first professional appearance. It took another seven to reach the Metropolitan Opera. And now I think, whether it's laying bricks, writing a book, whatever we choose, we should give ourselves to it. Commitment, that's the key. Choose one chair. Now the second is a story about Manfred von Richthofen. And again, you can't help but say that in a German. Von Richthofen! The Red Baron. The day was April 21st, 1918. Richthofen led his flight of triplanes to search for British observation aircraft. An engagement ensued between a flight of Sopwith camels led by the Canadian Royal Air Force pilot Captain Arthur Roy Brown. Brown's friend, Lieutenant Wilfred May, was a rookie on his first offensive patrol. May had been ordered to keep out of combat, but he couldn't resist. He jammed his guns and defenceless headed away from the battle. Richthofen spotted the, the lone plane and chose it for kill number 81. Brown observed the scene below him and dove to help his fellow airmen, knowing that May was no match for Richthofen. What happens next? Well, it was then, with Brown closing from behind, that Richthofen, usually a meticulous and disciplined fighter pilot, made a mistake and broke one of his own rules in following May too long, too far and too low into enemy territory. Two miles behind the Allied lines, as Brown caught up with the Richthofen and fired, the chase passed over the machine guns of the Australian field artillery. Who fired the fatal shot is still debated, but ultimately it doesn't matter. Whether it came from the air or the ground, the Red Baron was mortally wounded. Now, Richthofen was a good pilot, probably overconfident, but he broke one of his rules. Maybe he was distracted by something. Maybe he lost focus. He thought that he could get that extra kill that he wanted. But he compromised his own standards and it led to his demise. Temptation of kill, 81, was too much. Two examples there, Pavarotti, Richthofen, both recognised for their skills and their abilities in their chosen careers because they were focused on their goal. Which leads me to ask us this morning, how are we doing with building community with Jesus at the centre? How are we with our goal? Because if we're going to be a community with Jesus at the centre, that's got to be our focus, isn't it? Yeah? We can't try and sit on two stools, we'll fall between, and we can't allow ourselves to get distracted by things around us. And that leads me to Hebrews 3, we're there, don't worry. 
And it starts with the writer urging us to fix our thoughts on Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 3. If you haven't, it'll come up on the screen behind me. I'm going to split it, so we're going to look at verses 1 to 6 to start with, and then look at the rest of the chapter after. So this is Hebrews 3, and, and the subheading is, Jesus greater than Moses. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest, He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses, just as the builder of the house has greater honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. The last week we looked at Hebrews 2, didn't we? And we heard that Jesus was the greatest man. The greatest man ever to live. Greatest, period. That's it. So why does the writer continue at the theme at the start of chapter 3? Why does he have to go into detail to explain that Jesus was greater than Moses? Surely we covered last week that Jesus was the greatest man. Well, we have to look at and remember the context in which the letter was written and also the timing of it. It's, it's considered that Hebrews was written no later than 70 AD. So this was still in the very early days of the church, of Christianity, of the, those who follow Christ. And most of those who identified as Christians would have had a Jewish faith. And next to Abraham, Moses was the most revered man to the Jewish people. He was seen as a great prophet. He'd encountered God, and he was a man trusted to record the commandments and the law. A hero of the Jews, but now they're being told that there's someone worthy of more honour than him. Now, this morning, has anybody ever met one of the heroes? Some people... Some people, we won't go into who. There's a saying, isn't there, that you shouldn't meet your heroes because you're only going to end up disappointed. I won't ask whether you were or not. But has anybody had a hero whose kind of status has then changed over time? Yeah, some people, yeah. Can I, can I use an analogy from football? And if you don't like football, um, what's wrong with you? No, if you don't like football, um, just bear with me, listen up, hopefully you'll get it. Um, I've gone with something to get Kev's attention and keep him engaged with the sermon. So Bill Shankly was the Liverpool manager. He was appointed in 1959. Now Liverpool at this time, they'd won some trophies, but when he took over they were in Division 2. In new money, that's the championship. Shankly went in, he got them promoted, they won the league, and they won the FA Cup for the first time ever in 1965. And Bill Shankly was the greatest manager Liverpool had had. He was the hero to all the fans. He did great things and he built the club up to, to what, towards what it, what it is now. But when his time as manager ended, the club appointed his assistant, Bob Paisley, as the manager. And Bob Paisley carried on winning trophies. Bob Paisley won the European Cup. That's, if you don't know football, that's the biggest tournament in, in club football in the world. He won that. And he didn't win it once. He won it three times. 
And actually, his trophy count means that he's the most successful English manager. Bill Shankly was Scottish. But Bob Paisley, the most successful English manager of all time. You could say he achieved more than Shankly. And yet for some, Shankly remains the hero. Is that right, Kev? And they argue that, that Paisley was only able to succeed because of the foundations that Shankly laid. Now, to, to bring balance, if you look over at Manchester United... Sir Alex Ferguson, the greatest manager, English, Scottish, Irish uh, of all time in terms of the trophy count. His achievements in the football are incredible. He's recognised outside of football in business circles for his ability as a leader. And yet, at the moment, they've got an interim manager because the last one wasn't very good. So they brought somebody in until the end of the season and you've got to sing his name, Oli Gunnar Schalskara. You have to sing his name. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. And he's actually achieved a series of results greater than Alex Ferguson ever did. So Kev's praying that he's not going to be a greater manager than Sir Alex Ferguson. If you're not a football fan, do you follow him, mate? Yes? Good. Because we're going back to Hebrews now. And we're going back to a theme that we've covered before. And that's the desire of some Christians to maintain and live according to to the law of the Old Testament. And if you were around when we looked at Galatians or you've read the book of Galatians, you'll know that the gospel, the good news of Jesus was being diluted or polluted by people placing a greater emphasis on the need and their efforts to maintain the law. So you had to do that in addition to being a follower of Jesus. It wasn't enough just to follow Jesus. You had to keep the laws too. And you didn't place great emphasis on keeping the laws. How could you be a follower of Jesus? That's what was going around. So here we are again in Hebrews with this theme. And we see that some are concentrating on the message from the Old Testament. This group inside the church saying, we need to keep God's laws. We need to follow them. And as the laws come through Moses, we need to keep revering, revering, <laughs> revering Moses. Now, we know undoubtedly there were some believers who wanted to maintain the law. And you know, they probably struggled to see Jesus as greater than Moses at the time. But you may also have had some folks who, because of their backgrounds and their upbringing, being told that there was someone greater than Moses was a little bit uncomfortable. Because Moses was the greatest up until that point. And now they're being told there's somebody greater. And it may have been that in, in expressing their kind of following of Jesus, they felt maybe they were disrespecting Moses in some way. Yeah? Perhaps in the same way that these Liverpool fans, Shankly was original, so he's good, greatest, regardless of what comes next. But there's some thought that the Christians who were looking to give Jesus greater honour than Moses were actually being persecuted by those who continued to look to the law. And consequently and understandably, some of the followers of this new faith were tempted to go back to Moses and the law and what they knew. And here we see in Hebrews that the writer is trying to convince his readers that Jesus is greater than Moses. Yes, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. And the writer admonishes us to consider Jesus Christ. Consider that Jesus had kept all the laws for them. 
This letter is written to focus their thoughts on Jesus. Jesus who died on the cross to save us all from sin and eternal separation from God. And the writer is saying that even though you think that the Old Testament is going to save you, that God's law is going to save you, remember actually there's a new calling, a heavenly calling. And that heavenly calling means that we have to fix our, our eyes on Jesus. The writer calls Jesus an apostle. In the New Testament, that means the one who is sent. He refers to him as the high priest. Now that's something that people who followed the law and were in the Old Testament ways, the Old Covenant thinking, would understand. They were familiar with the high priest who offered the sacrifice after sacrifice, year after year, pointing to the true sacrifice was to come. And the writer is saying, remember the sacrifices, remember the high priest. Well, yeah, we did that, but now we've got Jesus, who is the true high priest. The writer has to compare Jesus and Moses, because some people were still putting the confidence in Moses. And he says, doesn't he, we've said it this morning already, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses. They revered Moses, they honoured him. But the fact is, when, Jesus, when Moses died, sorry, God buried Moses and he hid the body away. They didn't know where he was, so nobody could get the bones or he'd dig his body up and worship him. The Israelites couldn't create another false god. Moses had led people for a generation, over a generation. He'd led them to the edge of the promised land. And the writer tells people, as much as you love Moses, as much as you followed him and worshipped him, Jesus is greater. And then he tells them why. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses, just as the builder of the house has greater honour than the house itself. The writer says, stop, just think about it for a minute. Which is greater, the house or the builder? There can't be a house unless somebody builds it. And then he carries on the comparison by saying, for every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. And that's it. They put their trust in Moses in the ways of the Old Testament, but actually, Moses is only there because he'd been created by God. Yeah? Jesus, God is the builder of all things. Jesus is worthy of more, a greater honour than Moses. So what does that mean for us here at Junction 10? Well, um, hopefully there's nobody here who secretly worships Moses as an equal to Jesus. Uh, and me and my mischievous mind, are sat at home thinking about all the worship songs you could change. Moses, at your name we bow the knee, um, and things like that, but we, we won't go there. Um, and hopefully we all know that we're here this morning through grace, not because of our attempts to keep the law, but actually are the things that we're clinging to, things which are stopping us from putting Jesus at the centre of everything that we do. Because we're not a perfect church. There is no perfect church. I, I should have perhaps said, we recognise as a church the things that we could do better. And just stop for a minute. Let me ask you a, a rhetorical question. And if you're from Tipton, that means the answer stays in your head. It doesn't come out of your mouth. <laughs> the church at Junction 10 would be better if... Now I'm guessing some may have said, the church at Junction 10 would be better if we had a building. Well, it would make life easier in some ways. And we're giving updates about the progress of the building more regularly. 
And it can be exciting to hear what's happening, can't it? And about the developments and consider to start thinking about what might be. But in all that, we need to keep the G- Jesus at the centre of all we're doing. God has kept us. God has sustained us this far. And now as a church, we might have had to, phrase, hunker down for a bit, put some things on hold. But now we need to start stepping into our callings. And when the new building opens, I'm sorry, I don't believe it will be full overnight. You know, we, we may well attract some new people. Some familiar faces may come back. But the people, the families on the Allenwell, I don't think they'll suddenly all of a sudden walk in because there's a new building there. Well, they may do for the royal opening that Kev's going to arrange for us with his contacts. <laughs> but in terms of joining the church, I, I don't think it's going to be filled straight away. But the thing is, even if it were, we're talking five years down the line. And the Allenwell, Warsaw, our work colleagues, our family members, can't wait for a new building to be finished. They need Jesus now. They need all of us to be living a Christ-centered life so they can see a difference in us, so they can know and understand the freedom that living a Christ-centered life brings. So if the church at Junction 10 would be better if we had a building, can I challenge you gently this morning? And is that your Moses? We can perhaps think as a church about how we do or how we are church and how we do it better without a building. And prompted, does that mean actually putting our resources to work to fund different things, to pay for hire of different venues and we use it that way? So that we, 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 that, that's what we do. What I'm not saying is the church would be better if we did more. I'm not saying that. But we need to be wise about what we are being called to do. The church at Junction 10 would be better and will be better if we continue to build community with Jesus at the centre. If we give Jesus all the glory and all the honour and praise that's due his name. And if we listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit as we, as we go through our, our day-to-day lives. The second part of the chapter, I move on to that now, is headed warning against unbelief. So these next few minutes are going to be a, a riotous laugh, aren't they? So let's go back to uh, Hebrews 3 and, and uh, verse 7. Uh, so the, the subheading is warning against unbelief. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. During the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did, that is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray. And they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today. So that none of you may may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses laid out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? 
Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if, they did, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. And there's a challenge for us today, isn't there? For each one of us to examine ourselves. To determine that the old ways aren't creeping back in. That we continue to believe that salvation and we live the fact that salvation is through Jesus alone. In verses 7 to 11, the writer quotes directly from Psalm 95. Psalm 95 says, Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, or as you did that day at Massa, in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. See, Psalm 95 apparently was used in opening worship on Friday evenings or Saturday mornings for the Jews. And it starts with, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. It ends, though, with this warning that we see in Hebrews. A warning that you can't worship God if you're rebelling against him. And it uses an illustration of the Israelites in the wilderness that would have been very well known to the people of the time. See, the children of Israel, they saw miracle after miracle. They saw God's provision, divine provision, time after time. And yet they grumbled and they refused to believe that God was caring for them. They walked out of Egypt free after 400 years of slavery. They'd witnessed their children being saved from the angel of death that had struck the Egyptian children. They watched as the Red Sea parted. They received daily manna. They got fresh water from rocks. Their clothes never wore out. They'd got Moses to lead them. They were given God's word and God's law. They saw Moses' face aglow from the glory of God. They had a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to point them where to go. But time and time again, the Israelites refused to believe God. And they rebelled, and they exasperated him. Meribah means conflict or rebellion. They put God to their test time and time again. Massa means testing. How much proof did they need that God loved them and that God would save them? It seems that no amount of proof would be enough for them, does it? Day after day, God demonstrated his ability to care and provide. But when they came to the threshold of the promised land, they refused to go in. They refused to believe that God would give them the land. Despite all the miracles, they refused to trust. When the report was given that God had given them Canaan, the land of rest, when he'd given that to them, they refused to enter it. And they rejected God's plan for their lives. So God in his anger turned them away and he made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the whole generation, except Joshua and Caleb, died off. Only they were able to see the promised land, enter the promised land. The rest of them weren't able to enter God's rest, as we read in verse 11. They turned, God turned them away, and the rest of them never saw it. They suffered death in the desert and didn't reach Canaan. God stopped offering the place of salvation. If they wanted to go back to Egypt, then 
they die wandering in the wilderness trying to get there. See, the writer was warning that failing to see that Jesus was greater than Moses, that continuing to place such an emphasis on keeping the law was as foolish as the Israelites failing to trust God and for, them, for their plans to go back to return to Egypt. Now, if we can just take a step out, God's anger. Now, we're not talking about somebody who has a tantrum. Uh, I read something that made me smile. It's not, it's not, we're not talking about a God who gets angry and grabs the nearest angel and throws them to the side of the universe in the, in the tantrum. We're talking about God's righteous anger here. God's hatred of sin and unbelief. Now, some say, actually, we don't need to worry about God's anger today. We don't need to worry about God's anger and wrath today. That was old covenant and we're in the new covenant now. So that's something we don't need to worry about. God's not angry anymore. Now, I don't claim to understand everything. I don't claim to understand most things. But to simple me, if the Hebrew Christians no longer needed to worry or consider God's anger, why did the writer put it in there? If, it, if, if we don't need to be mindful that God can be angry, why is it in there? Why does it include it in the letter and then quote it from Psalm 95 and then restate it further on in verses 16 to 19? Now as a believer, we are free from God's anger and wrath. Amen? We're adopted sons and daughters. But you had people here in the church who were claiming to be believers. But they were failing to believe that Jesus was enough. And instead of choosing to believe salvation, and instead chose to believe that salvation was linked to their ability to keep the law. So I think we need to constantly be checking our hearts. Are they becoming hardened by sin? Are we letting sin creep in? Is there unbelief in our hearts? Are we starting to put other requirements upon salvation? Are we guilty of polluting the gospel maybe? That's what the writer asked in verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Now the next couple of, couple of verses give some instructions as to how we can guard against this. Verse 13 says, But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. So do we keep our hearts unhardened, soft? Encourage one another daily, as long as he's called today, which is always today, because the time we get to tomorrow, it's today. By the time we get to the day after tomorrow, it'll be today. Yeah? We need to build each other up, don't we, as a community. We need to call on each other if we feel our hearts becoming hardened, maybe. And we all share this responsibility, all of us together. And to me, that sounds like a community of people trying to put Jesus at the centre. Yeah? So this morning, let's make sure that we are focused on Jesus. And we're not caught between the law and grace. Is Jesus above everything in our lives? Is he above all our hopes, dreams, ambitions, plans? Is there anything or anyone that's challenging him for top spot in our life? 
recognise, just stop a minute and recognise that all those other things are only there because of Jesus. Everything else is passing. Jesus remains. You know, people continue to see Moses as an equal to Jesus and as, as a greater leader as he was, just look at the people that he was leading. Look at how they behaved. They rebelled. They failed to recognise God's complete provision. And even Moses, as good as he was, couldn't prevent them from dying in the wilderness. Compare that to Jesus, who actually was able to conquer death so that all of us can have eternal life. Actually, is there any comparison? And this morning, let's be a community that trusts entirely on Jesus, that encourages each other if we see someone struggling, that gently challenges each other if we see maybe hearts becoming hardened or we see people starting to maybe put conditions, however subtle, upon people coming to know Jesus. Let's be mindful that we don't pollute this gospel of Jesus because you know, we believe somehow we've got to play a part or it makes us feel better because we feel as though we've done our bit. Let's not hold on to what we have if it means that we lose what is to come. Let's just stand and I'll just pray for us as we, as we conclude the message.